You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and we're coming to you today from the Clubhouse Studios here in beautiful Rhinebeck, New York. We have a great guest here today. He's a great musician, a keyboard player. He was in a band called Every Mother's Son back in the 60s. I bet you some of you have heard of that name. He is currently practicing dentistry in Woodstock, New York. How about that? We're going to get to all of it, but first I got to introduce him, Mr. Bruce Milner. Bruce, welcome Dr. to the Rick Bruce Z. Milner. Oh, Mr. It's... Bruce Milner is my father, my brother, and my cousin. You earn your stripes, so. Yes. Okay, exactly. Dr. Bruce Milner. Well, well, I don't, you can call me Bruce. Well, Bruce, welcome to the Rick Z Show. Thank you, Rick. Thanks so much for coming over from Woodstock and doing this for us tonight. My pleasure. Now, you reside in Woodstock, but are you originally from the Hudson Valley or are you a transplant from elsewhere? If you call Brooklyn part of the Hudson Valley, then <laughs> you could say I'm part of the, I reside in the Hudson Valley. But no, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Born and raised in Brooklyn, New York till I went to college. And I went to college upstate here in Schenectady oh. <coughs> at Union College. Yes. Yes, where I, after four years, I finally joined the Glee Club. I mean, I don't know why it took me so long to join the Glee Club, <laughs> but then I started to have a good time in college. So how did you make your way to Woodstock? Did the music scene beckon you like so many others, or there, were there other reasons? Well, the name was always an attraction. Yeah. And I was at the Woodstock Festival in the summer of 69. You were? I was. Wow, okay. I was in dental school, and I was also in my, my rock and roll group, which had just, you know, we had just had a hit record like, like a year and a half before. So when I found out that this concert was going on, I hopped into my Pontiac and ill-prepared, <laughs> ill, very ill-prepared for what lied ahead, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of, you know, the weather and the whole scene. So, but I did come to the Woodstock Festival in 69 and I left the next morning because I was like, so I was unprepared to camp out and unprepared for the whole thing. So the mud, the rain, the, the mud, whole thing. everything. Yeah. So I saw Richie Havens play and I saw Melanie ah. and then, you know, I, I beat it back to my car because I had a press pass and I could get back to my car and, you know, me and Joni Mitchell like stayed home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, if you knew what it was going to turn into, would you have stayed? If you knew about all the legendary performances that... No. Well, yeah, I would have stayed if I had a change of clothing. Yeah. You know, and, you know, some camping gear, which a lot of people came with, but I came with none of that. So, no, I, I don't think I would have stayed. I'm not... I, I never, re like, resonated great with, like, huge crowds like that. I don't didn't feel too comfortable. Mm -hmm. But you liked the music. But I love the music, of course. I love the music. And then the reason I really wound up in Woodstock, because as we know, Woodstock was not in Woodstock, was because of, of a woman that I was going out with. Of course. And so, you know, I met a woman, and her parents had a summer house in Woodstock, and we started going up to visit them. And I was quite a bit older than her, so they weren't so happy about it, especially her father wasn't. But, you know, it was okay. And that's when I really started to come to, to Woodstock. And we later bought a house, and the, actually the house that we bought together belonged to the bass player in the group The Circle, Tommy Dawes. Red Rubber Ball. Yeah, Red Rubber Ball. and like Written just, by Paul Simon. That's right. And so that was my real en entry into like living in, in Hudson Valley, living in Woodstock, and started in kind of 1974. 
at that point it was a weekend place, but then, you know, as time went by, and then I had a, a son in 1989, and I spent more and more time. So what was Woodstock like back in the early 70s? It was more of that fabled place that we all come to know, of the, the image of Woodstock, that it, it certainly isn't that anymore. What was it like then? I mean, you say it was a weekend place, but... Well, you know, the iconic venue was the Joyous Lake. Mm. And there was great music always at the Joyous Lake. The owner of the Joyous Lake, Ron Marians, became a friend of mine. because, like, he was a podiatrist or something. But I became friends with him, and he had a lot of great jazz there. I mean, he had just amazing people coming to play. You know, Charlie Mingus and Mike Neri... And um, Paul Butterfield. Paul Butterfield. Yeah, all those people were playing there at the Joyous Lake when I got to Woodstock, like in 74. But they, I mean, they were there before that. So I would say that Woodstock was different because you could go out. The police presence was minimal. So you could walk out, be pretty high and get in your car and just drive home without, you know, fear of being stopped or anything. It was pretty, pretty loose. Mm, that's changed a lot. That has certainly changed tremendously. But, you know, I don't drink anymore, so it doesn't, doesn't matter. I'm not, I'm not getting in my car and driving home drunk anyway. So that was one thing. And just, you know, all the, all, uh, obviously all the shops were different, and there were many more hippies. There were a lot of hippies. You still see one from time to time, you know. Yeah, but they're kind of an, an anachronism at this point. Right, you're encouraged not to feed them or, or to, <laughs> you know. To touch them. Or to touch them in any way. Yeah. You're a great piano player, Bruce. I heard you play some beautiful uh, melodies as I was walking in here. You're sitting at the, the piano and playing. You play keyboard and, and piano. Where did you learn to play? Was this something that you picked up as a child? And why were you drawn to the keys instead of what a lot of people were drawn to at that time, which was guitar. I started playing by ear when I was quite young, probably seven or eight. That's not really young. Some kids start at age three, you know, these, what do you call it? Prodigies. Prodigies, yeah. yeah. Seven's pretty young still, though. Seven's pretty young. Pretty good. But, you know, I, I, was, I had a good ear from the beginning. Mm -hmm. But here's the reason why I played the piano. There was a kid's record. It was called Rusty in Orchestraville. And Rusty is a little boy who's tormented by his parents ask him to practice piano. So one night he has a dream, and all these instruments come to him, and they're alive. They're characters. And, you know, so the oboe comes to him and says, play me, Rusty. And, you know, he plays Peter and the Wolf. It's beautiful. And then maybe the clarinet comes to him and says, play me, Rusty. And then they, he plays another like classical piece. And then finally, the piano comes to Rusty in his dream and says, Rusty, in a deep, like a really baritone voice, he says, Rusty, it's me, your old friend, the piano. Let's play the Minute Waltz by Chopin. And when I heard the Minute Waltz by Chopin, I was hooked. I just was hooked on piano. Who are your piano influences, your idols, the, the guys that played piano or women, whoever they were, that inspired you to keep going with it? Did you like Jerry Lee? Did you like, uh, like Little Jerry Richard Lee. and those guys? Yeah, but I, w I was never a big like rocker like that. Mm -hmm. you know? It was more like, um, let's see, you know, Al Cooper. 
Al Cooper, yeah. Yeah, uh, Billy Preston. Love Billy Preston. You know, Billy Preston playing with the Beatles. Richard Manuel. From big, the band. Big influence. Sure. Great he piano was fantastic. That was pre-1970 as well. Mm-hmm. So that kind of music, the stuff he played, I mean, I loved the band. Yeah, me um, too. You know, I at that time I loved Blood, Sweat, and Tears and Al Cooper and Can't I Can't Quit Her was a great song that he played. Um, Felix Cavalieri, you know, the Young Rascals. Sure. When I saw the, the Young Rascals play at the phone booth, which was, a, you know, like the first disco, uh, you know, watching Felix Cavalieri play that B3 organ and whatever was like a thrill for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I saw him sit in with Billy Joel one time as a guest, jumped up on stage at, I think, the Garden or something, and that was so cool. And, you know, Billy Joel also is fantastic. Absolutely. Player and Elton John. And Elton John, too. And Elton John was like really, I mean, I remember exactly where I was when I heard um, your song for the first time. I was on the Long Island Expressway <laughs> driving out to play golf at my father's country club. And your song came on. And I said, like, wow, that just killed me. It's a beautiful yeah. song. Yeah. Beautiful piano in it, too. I can play that song. I bet you can. Speaking of you playing the keyboards and piano, you were in quite a successful group in the late 60s by the name of Every Mother's Son. You had a big hit, I should say your biggest hit with that group, reached all the way to, I believe it was number six on the Billboard charts, which is pretty high, yeah. and that is Come On Down to My Boat. Yeah. That had to be very exciting. What was that like when it was being played on the radio all the time? Friends <laughs> and family must have treated you like a rock star right away. I was in dental school, and... I remember being in my maybe second year or first year of dental school, and I said to my father, you know, I think I want to start this group with these couple of guys that I worked with at this beach club, and I think I want to buy an organ, like a Farfisa organ. And my father said, ah, what are you going to buy an organ for? Like, you're in school and everything. I said, I just wanted, I, I think it was $400. So I bought the organ, and then, like, a year and a half later when I was on Hollywood Palace with Bing Crosby, I was sat there and watched it with my parents and said, so what do you think now, Dad? <laughs> you know, like the answer was we got together, m myself and these the two brothers who I started the band with. The, the Larden brothers. The Larden brothers. Uh, Larry, Larry and, and Dennis. Dennis. Yeah. And um, I was friends with them. I would sing with them. They would sing like folk songs at a beach club that we all worked at and I would sing a third for Homie. They had their act pretty much together. And so we just decided to get together and try to make something a little more original. So we added two other members, um, were introduced to Wes Farrell. The songwriter. Um, was the songwriter and Jerry Gold Jerry Goldsmith, what was his Goldstein. name? Goldstein, that's yep. it. They wrote for Donnie and Marie, uh, and yep. amongst other yep. people. Yep, and the Cowsills, mm -hmm. and you know, uh, Jane the Americans, and Hang On Sloopy, and he'd had by then some good success with his songwriting and producing. And so, for whatever reason, he really liked us, and we had an audition with him, and he, we had a really good vocal sound, and he he looked for a deal for us, got us a deal with MGM Records. MGM Records sent us out on like three or four day weekend like little barnstorming kind of tours around the country in different regions where we would go out like we would play LA, San Francisco, and Seattle. That was the West Coast tour. Yeah. We'd play New Orleans, Florida, and somewhere else, you know. Little hubs. Yeah. 
and we'd go out for a weekend. I would get a, I would get a pass out of dental school for the weekend. I mean, my professors were like, why do you want to be a dentist? This is much more exciting. <laughs> and, you know, we would, we would go out and MGM would throw a big party for the local DJs and we'd do a live set. And then we go to the next city. It was great fun. And then the, we re- had recorded the record, the hit single, and that record broke uh, in Seattle on WKJR, which is a popular radio station. Pat O'Day was the, we knew exactly when it was going to play in the afternoon. We were doing a teen fair with the, I think the Critters was one of the groups and the, f- and the Fifth Dimension hmm. we were on the bus with, which was like amazing experience to be like with these people. Yeah. Because, you know, I was like in dental school. You know, it on certain charts, it was higher than number six. I actually have one chart that was number two in the country in August wow. of 67. And in New York City, where I lived, it, I think it was higher than six because it was like lo- we were local boys. Yeah, yeah. And so we were playing local gigs with the... Um, DJs from the New York area on WMCA and and um, WABC. Like I did an interview with cousin Brucey, like about three weeks ago. Yeah, I know on that. WABC FM, because he came to my office. <laughs> he had a tooth problem, so I took care of him. But I I, huh. sp- I I knew him for many many years. He knew of me. Whatever we'd have dinners, but this was the first time that I did any dental work. And then on his way out of my office, we. Um, I sat down at the piano. I said, "Hey, cousin." I mean, he calls me cousin. And I <laughs> call him cousin. <laughs> and I said, "I said, Bruce, because of you, everybody named Bruce in this country at one time or another has been called cousin Bruce." Yeah, you know, it's amazing. So, um, but I sat down at the piano and I played—I don't know what I played—a Beatles song or something. And you know, he said, "Hey, that's really good. I, you, you need to come on the show." So, I came on a show, which was. Very nice, but you know the the stardom. I mean, the the thing of hearing my record on the radio as I was driving around New York City and being in still being in dental school and everything was you know was amazing. Did you feel that this was the beginning of something, a larger career in music, perhaps? It was, but it was actually the end Hmm. (laughs) because we never. It was as that record was as high as we ever went. You know what I mean. So the follow-up record barely, you know, hit the charts, but it rose to maybe number 30 or something on, yeah. on the Billboard chart. And then the one after that was even less. Is that Put Your Mind at Ease? Put Your Mind at Ease. Yeah. Put Your Mind at Ease was like, you did your homework. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, Put Your Mind at Ease was, um, came out next. It, w- it was okay. It was okay. I mean, it was, you know, the, the guys in the group wanted to take over the writing from the producers. And so that was a bit of a, a friction. I bet, especially yeah. being that you had a hit with something somebody else wrote. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I'm wondering, you know, nobody in the group wrote the, wrote your biggest hit, so you don't get writer's royalties, and then you got to split what you do make, you know, four or five ways, something right. like that. I mean, can somebody in that position make much money off of even a big single like that? Um, I mean, how did you do? I mean, I made some money. I mean, I got some money from helping go through dental school. Mm-hmm. But I swear to God, at this point, I have no idea what I made. <laughs> I have no idea what we made. You know, 
the other guys wrote original songs on the other two records. I only had maybe three or four songs. They had like 16, wow, 15, okay. 14. Because I was in dental school and I was not concentrating on writing music. I was trying concentrating on getting through school and doing this and being you know, in this band at the same time. They, how on the other hand, were free all day and they could just sit around and, and you know write tunes. Yeah, you know what I mean. And so, um, but I don't know. I don't know who, whoever made what. I mean, actually, the the uh, our manager of the group was was he had signed uh, had all of us sign a power of attorney agreement with him, and it was later found out, like several years later, that he was taking all the royalty checks. Uh. So the other guys, the two guys, like sued him. I mean, it was like it was like really unbelievable that he did that. You know, in MGM, yeah. when I think of MGM as a label, you know, I think of course first of movies, and I know they put out a lot of soundtracks to their movies, and later Broadway soundtracks and things like that. Yeah. I don't think of them as a big major label for pop music. W- what was MGM like in those days? Were there a lot of pop bands on their roster? You got me. Okay, because I'm thinking ma- maybe they just didn't push the single as hard as they could have, n- not having the, the exact same resources as, you know, some of these other bigger record companies, but I don't know. Well, Every Mother's Son, I'm curious about the name because I think of three things. There's a short story with that name. Richard Somebody wrote it. I can't think of the name of the author. I also think of we're ordinary guys. We're just regular right. guys. Right. And I also think... Of something going on in 1967, the Vietnam War was still raging at the time, and I don't know. I think every mother's son going off to war, every mother's son being drafted, or some kind of right. slight political reference. But do you have any uh, I inkling? I think it had all those references, you know, and inferences. But I think the actual name of every mother's son was taken out of two uh, literary sources um, that. Uh, Dennis Lorden, you know, the guitar player in the band, um, had come across in his reading. One was in Moby Dick, where there's a reference to every mother's son of you. Hmm. And then in The Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare, Merchant of Venice, there's another reference to every mother's son. And it came up a couple of times in his reading, and that it stood out, you know, for him. That's a cool name. I, I like the name. Every mother's son. You know, one of the great experiences I had was there was a concert one week before Monterey Pop. It was on June 10th and June 11th, 1967. Monterey Pop was regarded as the first really, really large outdoor rock concert. But in fact, the concert, the Magic Mountain Fantasy Fair concert at Mount Tamalpice in Marin County had 40,000 people came to an amphitheater that was could only really hold 4,000 people. Tons of people came. And the lineup of acts that performed was astounding. It was, just to name a few, okay? The Birds and You Masakela, Moby Grape, The Doors, Jefferson Airplane, Country Joe and the Fish, Dionne Warwick, The Fifth Dimension, Captain Beefheart, The Merry-Go-Round, Tim Buckley. A lot of great artists. Yes, it was like amazing. It was an amazing lineup like uh, for two 
days in a row. It was like an amazing concert. So we played that, which was amazing to go out on stage in front of 40,000 people for me at that time. Wow, that had to be. Kind of venues like that. Summer of Love. It was the Summer of Love in San Francisco. And, you know, we played like four or five songs. We played our hit record, which had just come out, and people loved it. And as a matter of fact, when they when they did a clip of the concert, they showed every mother's son, which was like, I, that's unbelievable to me. They showed every mother's <laughs> son, you know, with all the other talent that was there. It was amazing. And I felt very kind of out of place because, you know, I was in dental school. I was like wearing a suit, and everybody was like in beads and tripping. And, you know, it's like Janis Joplin was behind the stage. It was like, I'm, I'm, it was outdoors, and I'm standing backstage with, all these like people who had really, you know, were idols in a way. Must have been surreal. It was surreal. When I listen to Every Mother's Son, I'm always marveling at what sophisticated harmonies there are for this little pop group. I mean, I think of the Beach Boys, I think of the Beatles, the Animals, the Association, all these different sounds come to mind. You guys fit right in there with that whole sound of the late 60s. It was one song in particular I was thinking of The Letter by The Box Tops, yeah. which was also a big hit in 1967. Played, yeah, we played with them. That doesn't surprise me because I could see that as being a really good fit. In fact, the opening fill of Come On Down to My Boat, it's a, kind of the snare hit. That happens in, in The Letter by The Box yeah. Tops as well. Exactly. That's right. I never thought of that. That keyboard sound that you had, you know, that was a very popular sound at the time. It was. And uh, it's still cool. I still find that to be a really cool sound. Somehow I came up with a good organ part. Really, I wanted to play. I wanted to, when I sat down at a B3 organ, you know, and at a, because there was one in a studio, which was really what Al Cooper would play. And those guys, oh, you know who another piano influence for me was? Mike Smith of the Dave Clark Five. Oh, wow. He was great. He was really great. And... The guy Alan Price, Alan in Price. the Animals, yeah, in House of the Rising Sun, that organ solo that he does in the House of the Rising Sun, and <laughs> and Gary Brooker, you know, Procol Harum, yeah, because Procol Harum was like number six on the chart, we were number seven or something like that, we were close, so I always loved his his playing, you know, I, I mean, I always was drawn to piano. Not so much the Doors keyboard player. Ray Manzarek. Yeah, I didn't like... I mean, of course, Light My Fire, that was Sit Alone. Mm, Sure. But, um, yeah. Well, this single, we've talked about it so much, I'd like to play it. And for people who haven't heard it before, and there will be plenty out there that do recognize it, and some younger people maybe that won't, I'd love to uh, play it. Can we play it right now? Sure. All right, this is Every Mother's Son with Come On Down to My Boat. Oh, hey, check this out. Bruce Milner on keyboards. And vocals. Don't know her name, she's a fisherman's daughter, uh-huh. 
first album came out, I mean, I sang on every song on that album. Wow. And I sang, I was the lead vocal on I Won't. I was the lead vocal on uh, I Believe in You. I was the lead vocal on the B-side of uh, Come On Down To My Boat, Baby, which was what became of Mary. I sang a lot of lead vocals. When the album came out, somehow it was a conspiracy, but not really, but like, but when they gave the credits on the back of the album cover for, you know, who played what and whatever, there was a picture of me and under it said organist. And it didn't include that I actually was a vocalist. What a ripoff. From that point on, I, there was like a lack of trust between me and the other guys in the, like the two brothers in the band, the Larden brothers. Oh, interesting. That was like, really annoyed me. I want, you know, really annoyed me. Yeah. I mean, singing's an instrument, too. You played the voice, so you yes, should get credit for that, it. Yes, I did a lot of the vocal arrangements as well. Is that right? A lot of them. I'm singing falsetto on Come On Down To My Boat. We're all singing in the chorus. She sits on the dock of fishing in the water. Uh-huh. That's all of us singing. It's not just like... Uh, it's like a unison group vocal. Yeah, and that's how we did it in concert. Were the Lardens the leaders of the group? I mean, d- did you have the same equal say as they did in the group, or was it... It was the three of us. It was the three of you. Yeah. So you, you made equal decisions yeah, as because, they did. Yeah, I mean, we, we were... But as I said, po- the politics became... We started the group together, the three of us. We were the three front guys. We did all the vocals. I did the vocals. I did, you know, in concert when we, when we did... You know, live gigs, I did a lot of the vocals. But what happened was because I was in dental school at the time, they were just going up to the studio or, or the producer's office and writing all the time, presenting songs to him and doing. They were, you know, active all day, and I was, like, in school. So at a certain point, they had more sway with him than I did. Do you feel that they were responsible for you not getting the credit, or was that the record company? Various trust issues developed mm-hmm. after that, when I saw that. That's just like, it really annoyed me. Do you ever see or hear from or talk to any of the other members, you know, Chris, I speak Christopher Chris, Augustine? Yeah, I speak to Chris. And uh, Don and Kerr? Never speak to Don Kerr. I mm-hmm. don't, never. He, I, you know, he was, he was the mad on. Have you guys had any reunions? No. How come? Well, when you only have one hit song, nobody wants to go see like a group with just a one hit wonder. Because like after three minutes, you do your song and like what else you got? Yeah. You know what I mean? So I was in conversation with Danny and Chris about maybe getting together um, because I've always dreamed of doing that because I'm actually a better player now than I was then. Probably not as good vocally because I'm old. You know, but it happens. I mean, I still sing on, but I can't sing the really high falsetto parts yeah. that I used to sing. His idea was to do Every Mother's Son performs the hits of the summer of 67, which was a great idea for us to sing like If You're Going to San Francisco, like some bird song, like take the whole... yeah bunch of songs. Gary Lewis and the Playboy. Yeah, that were on the charts there, and we would work those songs out ourselves and, and perform them, which would great idea. be a great idea. I thought it was a great idea, but I don't know, it just never... It was too much work 
So when was it abundantly clear to you that this hit, this come on down to my boat, was going to be the pinnacle of every mother's son's career? It wasn't going to go beyond that. It, it became clear to me not after the second record was put out, but after the third one was put out. I mean, after the second one was put out, I still felt we still could have pulled it together and um, gotten something. But the third one was even less commercial. And again, it was Pony with a Golden Mane. Hmm. It's like, no, I don't think so. Hmm. And that's how I felt about it. No, I don't think so. (laughs) And you were in the group. And I was in the group. So, I mean, now you're a dentist, you're... Uh, and you have been for quite some yeah. time now. Yeah. You must work on the teeth of a lot of musicians because you live in Music Central uh, for the Hudson Valley. I, oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, does it ever bug you that, I don't know if you play that woulda, coulda, shoulda game at all. I mean, you, a dentist is a great living and it's a great career to have. But, you know, do you ever think, boy, you know. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I'm, you know, listen. I know enough great musicians now who are like top musicians. They're older, and they you know they struggle financially. Most of those guys, when I express my regret, they uh, say, "Well, no, it's good you did what you did." Mm-hmm. For me, it's not about having another hit or anything. It's about being a really, really great keyboard player. That's what it's about. So when I go out and see all these great guys playing, I'm envious, you know, because I've put in the 20,000 hours in in my career because I've been a dentist for over 50 years. Wow. Literally. I started, you know, 69 was when I graduated from dental school. Do you play out around here? Yeah, I'm playing out. Actually, I'm playing out on Wednesday. Really? Where? At the Colony. At the Colony? Yeah. I'd like to come to see you play. Now, what do you do? Do you just play solo? Do you have a little group? No, I play with a woman friend. We've been playing together for about six, seven years. Hmm. We do a lot of covers. I do maybe a couple, uh, like I just do one original song that I wrote about my granddaughter, which is a a beautiful, beautiful song. I mean, if we were set up for it, I'd play it on the piano and sing it because it would be nice. That would be.
That's my song about Josie. Yeah. And Josie, too. <laughs> Josie Thank and you, the Bruce. good That was beautiful. Thank you. You know, when we do the podcast and we have a lot of great guests on, there's, you know, plenty of research to be done. I do my research. But in addition to that, there's always rumors floating around about people. And, I, and sometimes I like to ask them to corroborate it. Is it true? Is it not true? There's a couple of rumors about you. You can confirm or deny. one of them is that you're into tuvan throat singing oh yeah that's a that's real that's a that's true well i was in a um acapella vocal group for 18 years which ended actually about three years ago um but an acapella vocal group and we did over the overtone kind of singing yeah um when yeah so yeah and for our for our listeners Tuvan throat singing, by the way, this style of throat singing is where you can produce more than one tone at the same time. You can essentially harmonize with yourself. Yeah, you're singing a, a root note, and then you're singing a note above it. Very difficult to do. I mean, it's it's a discipline that, that takes a lot of concentration and practice. Yeah, and I was in a group where with um, originally nine or ten people who all did that. Wow. But... I mean, the leader of the group, Baird Hersey, was like he was the best at it. But we all did it and learned how to do it, and we'd all sing together. And people would come to our concerts and wonder where all these sounds would, you know, whether there was a synthesizer that we were playing or anything. But it was all vocal. It was all vocal. It was, um, for me, it was a great, wonderful thing. We actually got together three nights ago and did a session at another studio over at Scott Petito's. Um, uh, NRS. Of a song that um, Baird wanted us to record because we had never recorded it. So we, five of us got together and we recorded it. It was very, very nice. I was the um, bass in that group, mostly. And then you can do that for those. Yeah. That kind of. Hey, stuff. that's pretty good. That kind of bass, and then there's other kinds of. I can't do that that throat singing, but I, I'm fascinated with it. I uh, I saw this great documentary, Genghis Blues. Genghis Blues was like the best. Phenomenal. Well, here's another rumor, um, and we'll end on this one. I, and I'm fascinated by this. I I don't know what to make of this. You you tell me. This could be completely off the wall, untrue. <laughs> but I heard. I don't even remember where I heard it from, so don't ask me. I heard that you once gave yourself a root canal. Oh, not once. <laughs> Three times. You gave yourself a root canal. Um, I like how you say gave yourself as if well, it's like gave. Well, I mean, no one Well, no, it isn't really it's a giving like I thing. I did it on myself. Right. You thing. perpetrated. Yeah, I a, did it because I was like up half the night with a pain and. Now, how does one, uh, without getting too technical, because I'm not a dentist, most of our listeners are not dentists, but I would figure when you have a root canal, you got to be kind of doped up for it. Otherwise, um, it's going to be painful. Uh, no, I gave myself a shot, got myself numb. Mm-hmm. I had a mirror that hangs around my neck that somebody gave me, so I could have two hands free, and I could just hang the mirror around my neck's at neck and angle it so that I could clearly see myself hmm. in the mirror as like if I turn my head 
the mirror turned with me. So it was very clear. I have a good light. And then I just did it because I've done probably 25,000 root canals in my career. Don't you have any dentist pals that could hook you? Like, hey, I didn't want, no, it was like 6 a.m. in the morning. I oh. just like went over to my office and I just wanted to do it, just get it over. It was like not difficult. I, I put it on Facebook on a, on a picture and people were like. A self root canal yeah, picture yeah, on Facebook. Yeah, a picture of me doing huh. root canal myself with a light. You, you probably could see I it. must say it sounds absolutely ridiculous. First of all, I charged myself, <laughs> you know, a lot of money. And it's like they're expensive. Shopping. Okay. <laughs> uh, Bruce, yeah. uh, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming over here and talking to us about you know, let your me just career. Say one other thing yeah. In closing. Sure. You, we were talking about like the number, the, the musicians that I have, like in my practice. I have so many. Yeah. You know, uh, it wouldn't be correct to name them. Right, right. Except I'm going to name one. Oh, good. And he's an iconic saxophonist. In his 90s. Oh, you must be and talking about Sonny Rollins. SR. Okay. Yeah, now Sonny has not only been a patient of mine for the last few years, and, you know, Robbie Dupree, you know Robbie. He's been on the show. Steal Away. Yeah. And he brought Sonny to me. He, he, he referred Sonny to me because Sonny was having some problems, and Robbie's come to me before. So then I, you know, then I started a relationship with Sonny, and to this day, you know, we, we talk all the time. You remind me of Robbie Dupree a little bit because you're both soft-spoken and you're both from Brooklyn. So <laughs> right. that, that's all it takes uh, for, for me. <laughs> right. um, but Sonny Rollins, uh, a legend, and I'm very jealous that you even stood next to him. So I did meet him yeah. once, so I, I'm very happy. But He's I haven't, a wonderful man. haven't been able to get him on the show. You know, before we go, because we're winding down, what I'd like to do is play another song before we have to get out of here. Okay. Uh, you know, there's stuff off the record, the albums, that are so good that should have been released. And, you know, there's one that I particularly like if you want to dig it out on the second album and play it. It's a really, really good song. It's called Another Day, Another Song. such a splendid thread And you can't distinguish what's been felt and what's been said Two rights make a wrong That's another day You lock and bar the door Then you sit within your pit And say you feel secure That's where you belong But that's another day Another time They say It couldn't happen anyway That's another story Pay a different way, it's such an ugly cost. 
Well, thank you, Bruce. This has been really fun to talk to you. You're a nice guy, good good sense of humor, and a, a real good piano player and keyboard player. Thanks for talking about your career. Thanks for doing it. You're very, very, very welcome. It kept my 15 minutes of fame going. <laughs> Let's keep that most going. Of my, most of my fame these days is like from being a dentist. Well, not in the studio today. <laughs> well, good. Thank you, Rick. Anytime, Bruce. I'm going to come out and see you. I'm going to come out and see you play. Yeah, are you? Yeah, I am. Okay. You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z. Special thanks to Paul Antonell for hosting us here at the clubhouse tonight. The Rick Z Show is produced and engineered every week by Josie Grant. And come on back next week. I'm sure we'll have another great Hudson Valley artist for you. See you then. Joe, Josephine. Josephine. The prettiest.